Welcome to episode 60 of the Draft Lab podcast, brought to you by MTGAZone.com. I'm your host, Josh Phillips, aka J2S Josh, and I'm once again joined by all time 17 Lance Trophy leader and one hell of a good guy, if I do say so myself, Chris Palmiotti, aka Florida Mun. We're going to be discussing the hidden gems of Dominaria United. We might cut it a little short this week because I'm in Florida and Ian is about to rock me like a hurricane, literally. So, how's it going this week, actual factual Chris? Actual Factual Chris is doing well over here in very timid, (laughs) comfortable weather climate, San Francisco Bay Area. Must be nice. I think you will get more rain in approximately 88 seconds over during your hurricane than we do the entire year. Yeah. Well, stay safe out there, bud. I got snacks for days, though, at least that. They're going to find me laying up in here like Snorlax covered in chips by the time it's over. So that brings us to our weekly update. We're coming up on the Arena Open this weekend, which is going to be Dominaria United Seal. The only real advice I can give you is open busted rares and the right fixing. You're going to need it. May the odds be ever in your favor. Day one is sealed, and then day two is draft. Is that correct? Yes. Awesome. So luckily, the one that you could just enter as many times as you like is the more uh, slot machine format. It's still expensive for 4K, 4,500, 5,000 K gems a pop, something like that. I assume they go up about 10% every time an arena open comes around. We don't actually check, but I'm sure normal people who don't have infinite gems are like, what the crap every time. Yeah, so, but, you know, day two is best of three Dominaria drafts, which is going to be pretty sweet. I'm excited to play it. Yeah. Hopefully the draft lag could like collectively cash like 6k dollars again or something. All right. That brings us to our bounty. Strangely enough, no one has turned in last week's bounty of hitting a Sulkanar off of Joda. Imagine my shock. Maybe that's requesting someone to fly too close to the sun. But we're unfortunately going to take a week off from the bounties because I'm probably going to lose power and I won't be able to respond to anybody. So. Yeah, and Josh doesn't trust me to monitor the situation, which is honestly a good call, which is for the best. (laughs) Yes. Also, instead of doing a pack one, pick one, I think it'd be best to get to the main topic. You ready to talk about the hidden gems? I am. I am. There's sleeper cards sprinkled throughout this format that aren't going to bust any game wide open, but I think are very solid role players in the right deck. And I still see them go a little later than I think they should. Yeah, it's not necessarily the same thing as an overperformer. It's more like ones that just aren't getting enough credit for what they bring to the table. Right. Basically, the Chris version of a card. Wait, are you saying you don't get enough credit for what you bring to the table? That's correct. That's correct. I credit you for everything, buddy. I didn't say here, Josh. I just mean in general. Oh, like life at work. Yeah, exactly. All right. One of the big ones for me is Vohar Vodilian Desecrator. Maybe my love for Demir decks is showing through here, but I keep getting this late and it just does so much for two mana. It smooths your draws out, eventually lets you flashback a key spell, which you can still pay the kicker on. It can even provide a little bit of reach with the life drain. It combos so smoothly with Urberg Repossession, which is another one of the cards that everyone should know about by now, but strangely, sometimes still goes late. Yeah, Vohar is definitely... You know, classify that under one the ET category of economical threat, two mana, something that you feel like you shouldn't let your opponent just like have on the battlefield for that long. A great play pattern I like with Vohar is just kind of holding it in your... I mean, if you got your hand set up and you're a long domain deck or something, I just like holding this in my hand until I have enough mana to basically play the sacket and then play the spell I get back. So uh, my opponent doesn't even have an opportunity to mess with it. 
And I don't know if you've ever bought back a drag under, but that's a pretty sweet feeling when you get to cast the second one in the match. Yeah, well, you ever done it with the herd migration? I actually did it today for the first time. It was great. I had to feel amazing, right? I had 11 mana too, so I got to do exactly that. <laughs> they did not see it coming. Was that on your stream today? No, it was uh, off stream. Okay. I didn't get to watch all your stream because my internet was not cooperating. Oh, the bummer. So the next one I want to talk about is Negate. Yet again, my love for Demir might be showing a little bit here. Because in those decks, I love one or two negates in the main to help deal with some of the key problem spells. You start to run into issues when they play, say, Urberg Repossession to get back two threats that you Essence Scattered or use an Essence Scattered removal spell on. But Negate just answers that pretty cleanly. And while Shore Up is nice and all, by the time you want to hold that up to protect your terror, this is just a more comprehensive version of it. Yeah, I've been liking including kind of one, maybe two copies of Negate, depending on how much card churn, deck churn you have. But it's definitely really good when you just have multiple ways to generate value and your opponent has to start popping off spells to not fall behind on cards. And then you can just like kind of protect one or two of your game winning creature threats or just stop them from doing their all in heroic charge attack. That's always bad when you set up blocks, which looks like they're bad to a heroic charge. And then they pop it off and you're just like, oh, negate. You just look at me like, no, 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 not today. So the next one, Automatic Librarian. I know me and Joe John talked about it a little bit last week. But it fits pretty smoothly in when you're playing any of the domain decks and you're worried about casting things because of colors. This just smoothly usually drops out on three and lets you go, oh, I don't need a third forest. I need to get deeper or I can't draw this card next turn because I can't cast it. I don't have the mana. And you're like, oh, OK, cool, whatever. And then it just trades for something. Yeah, good one off copy in exactly that situation you described. I don't think I have much to add, but I definitely have put a few librarians in my decks and haven't felt too bad. Yeah, it's my favorite card 23 of the set. Yeah, I think that's fair. You definitely don't want it in any like two color deck. So this is like basically domain only card. Correct. The next one is Crystal Grotto. How do you feel about that? I actually like Grotto. It belongs in decks where you're going to like three color, four color power level, but not necessarily relying on a lot of domain triggers. It basically fixes your mana. And I know a lot of people just look at it and say basically... Oh, this is adding one mana to a lot of your cards. And that's not necessarily true. It's hopefully just being an extra land to cast your base color cards on curve. And then it's kind of like a get out jail free card when your mana isn't lining up super well. And sometimes you have to pay extra for a card. But a lot of the times the cards you're jamming into a deck with Grotto are so powerful that even if you pay a little bit of a premium, they're still worth it. So this has felt good. And the scry never hurts. Sometimes you do stuff like Mind Singer, an opponent's creature with an activation that you can suddenly pay because you have Grotto. Exactly. I think I saw that somewhere today. Hmm. Like you said, it's not going to get us more because if you, say, have an Outrider and you just don't have red mana, that Outrider didn't cost five. It cost infinite because you couldn't play it. So paying six for it's a much better deal than not being able to play it. And it coming into play on tap means it's usually not going to affect you too much. Zalfir and Void was a playable card. So it's just a scry and a colorless land, and then you get the little bonus of fixing your mana. Some good heuristics for, do I put Grotto in my deck are the following. Do I really, really care about domain number of different land types? If yes, I would try to avoid this and pick up dual lands when possible. Another thing is, do I have complex card casting color requirements on my early drops? Yes, then I probably prefer dual lands over Grotto. But if you just basically are splashing several off-color cards that are more late-game cards anyway, and you have, for all intents and purposes, a two-color deck for the first half of your curve, I think Grotto is like the perfect 
card for those kind of decks. It's great whenever it's just a, hey, I can pay this off-color kicker cost. Right, right. That's another thing, too. If you're, like, mostly two colors and you just have a bunch of, like, incidental kicker stuff, just throw Grotto in, and then you don't have to try to jam one basic of all the other cards to make all your kickers work. Especially if it's, like, a focused white-red deck or something like that. You don't have to worry about it coming into play tapped and messing up your curve. Yeah. And speaking of said decks, Flowstone Kavu. I know you have some opinions about that one. Yeah, this card does a lot of cool little things. It's 2-3 Menace on a 3-drop. is solid, but the extra activation to give it plus 1, minus 1 for a single red mana multiple times gives you a lot of flexibility in how to use this card. It's pretty good to enlist things with. It gives you bonuses for the Oros Uncommon 2-drop. It lets you have a higher base power, so you get your 1-1 token at the end. It's kind of tricky to block, pushes a lot of damage, and it just plays a really nice role right where it needs to on curve. And if you just go 2-drop into this with some backup combat tricks and removal, and they only have creatures to play, you have a lot of control over how the next few turns go, and you can usually just attack in and offer a trade-up on mana, or even set up a situation where they have to double-block this and you get to kill two two twos or something. A two power menace for three is pretty underpowered because they just don't block it and they deal with your other creatures until they have two creatures big enough to deal with it. But on this one, cracking in for four is a much bigger deal than cracking in for two. That takes a big chunk of their life total. It gets them a lot closer to dead. And even when they get two big enough creatures to go, okay, I'll just double block that, you can pump it up and still trade for like a four drop or a five drop. Yeah, in general, I've been pretty impressed with Menace in this set just because the combat tricks are so strong. Whenever you force your opponent to put two creatures onto a single attacker, that's when you could really kind of set up some great two-for-ones or even like three-for-ones if they have to double block and then play something to even make the double block worth it. But this makes cards that are kind of flying under the radar a bit like Battle Rage Blessing and some of the really cost-effective green pump spells even better. It's a good card in any rag deck that wants to be attacking. Or even Fury Spell. First Strike plays really nice with the pump ability. Yeah, and you can get up to 7 power like pretty easily too. 7 power First Strike is... Big game. Yeah. And while we are on the Flowstone discussion, Flowstone Infusion's another one. It's so often just one mana interaction that just kills their 2-drop or their 3-drop even. And while it doesn't seem like a big deal, giving you those extra turns, not taking 4 damage or 6 damage that lets you set up your crazy domain stuff is a pretty big deal. Yeah, and I like to see these one mana interactive spells as like kind of altering the coin flip of a game. Because usually the benefit of going first, you're giving up a card, but you're getting on board first. If you get to go on the draw, play mountain, pass back, and then kill their two drop, all of a sudden you're up a card and then you basically are the one adding to the board first. You're behind mana still, of course, but it feels really good. When you get to use your first mana to kill a legitimate creature and then you start adding to the board and then all of a sudden they have to kind of play behind. And usually you're putting these in decks in like the spells deck or decks that really want to kind of be on the board first and control the tempo of the game. I just see it as a removal spell. Sometimes you get to, you know, pump your creatures for extra two power and that matters out of nowhere. But yeah, I like to just use this to kill things or pair this with any first strike creature so it can kind of trade up. This card is very mana efficient and it gets spells in your graveyard pretty early for the terror decks. Yeah, it also goes really well with Balmore. Right, right. The next one was Pixie Illusionist. I like this card. If you're a base blue deck that's trying to do domain stuff, it's definitely something I'm not embarrassed to play on turn one. It's going to chip in some damage. It just moves the next 
several turns of mana if your deck is really that kind of over the top in color requirements. And in the late game, it can be a 3-3 flyer pretty easily. I think it's a nice utility card. I kind of lumped this in with the mana worker, the 1-3 artifact that fixes, where you don't mind putting slightly understated cards in your deck to enable domain because the domain payoffs are usually more than making up for them. So you definitely don't want to put this in a deck that's just like Simic without really a lot of domain color fixing stuff going on. But if this can enable much more powerful cards consistently, you're usually okay playing something that's a little underwhelming in a vacuum. All right, the next one's Battle Rage Blessing. It's not just a horse version of Take Up the Shield, which is what a lot of people say about it. It provides the ability to trade up and lets you get away with stuff like killing a Territorial Morrow with a Phyrexian Rager. You got to pick your spots with this card. Like I was saying, this is a card that goes great with Menace decks, so I think this performs really well in red-black aggro decks that have access to multiple Menace creatures, and you can kind of use your cheap interaction like removal spells to make it so they have to tap out and rely on creatures to kind of block with to not die, and then this is when that card kind of shines. This is one of those cards that gets a bump in performance just because people don't play around it really still. It's one of those cards that is so under the radar it gets better because of it. You jam in with your big creature and people just throw like a pile of guys in front of it. And this isn't the thing they're ever thinking of where it's like, oh, no, just all my guys die. Oh, wonderful. And they keep theirs. That didn't really work out well. Another reason why I like it in Red Black, because Red has a lot of access to trample creatures. And sometimes it matters to just like get it, the blocker to dead and trample over a few extra damage. The next one is Phyrexian Warhorse. So what do you think about Seabiscuit here? <laughs> Seabiscuit has a bone to pick with the racers, I think, because it is just chomping away uh, different soldier tokens to grow and, and be really annoying on Battlefield. Obviously, you want to try to be always kicking this when you play it. It's as just a 3-3 that has the ability is a little lackluster. But when it comes down in a deck where that cares about having extra sack fodder or going wide, it fits really well in those decks at the five drop slot. And then it just becomes one of those threat of activation cards that really becomes a pain to kind of play around sometimes. It's something you usually have to put stuff in front of in the late game or else it could just nug you for seven, nine damage out of nowhere, which is usually a problem. And it also kind of feels bad to use like a real removal spell on it because it brought that token along with it. So it's just kind of like an annoying role player that could kind of sit at the top of a curve for like a really fine-tuned Orzhov deck that's trying to use multiple bodies to its advantage. Yeah, I kind of like the fun little mini game of when you attack with that and they don't block of do you just go for it or not? Yeah, it definitely adds a lot of complexity to combat and planning out your attacks. I had a game where they had Warhorse and then they had the 1-3 Rakdos Uncommon that makes it 2-1 every turn. And so I was constantly doing math every turn about like, oh, wait, did five creatures die? Are they going to sack an extra creature with Warhorse and get to activate the ability on that legendary dude and just get any card from their deck? And it was like a close game. So I imagined them getting any card from their deck was going to be enough to tilt the scales. Every combat became very intense about what blocks do I make? How much damage do I take? Do I just start chump blocking so they can't push damage and also have five creatures die? It became very like complicated. I ended up pulling it out, but the Warhorse definitely was the thing on the battlefield that made things especially difficult. And that brings us to the last one, Pilfer. I think this card's actually a lot better than it looks. Well, one, it can get anything. And that's a big deal because it's not one of the cards where you just play it and go, oh, they didn't happen to have any of these. It's, hey, you have something in your hand. And if they have nothing, oh, well. But also, 
in a lot of the domain matches, there's almost always something later in the game. It's very rare that like, oh, we're just in top deck mode. Nobody has anything. Yeah, obviously everyone thinks about that scenario about this card. Oh, what if I just top deck this in a top deck war? These matches aren't coming down to top deck wars so often. When you play these cards like Pilfer, even against something like a Boros deck or a Selesnya deck that's trying to dump their hand and go wide, they're usually waiting to flood the board and holding on to like a heroic charge. So they're like kind of stalling until like one big swing as opposed to dumping their hand and then also using all the combat tricks they have. If you get to play this on turn two, great. But even if you have to actually add to the board and you don't get to play this till like turn five or something, you can usually snap like the one thing that's going to tie together their game plan. Kind of goes the same for like Celestia. So I like one of this and I don't know if you've ever gotten to play the Raven Man on turn four into a Pilfer, but boy, that feels good. I said this with Extracted Truth. I think people continue to undervalue how much of an edge just knowing your opponent's several cards in hand gives you. So if you just pop this off on turn two on the play, it just feels like you have so much command over the game and you can just make the perfect plays for the next several turns. Sorry about the short episode. Like you said, hurricane issues. So we're going to go to cool play of the week. Going to throw this one out to Draft Lab member to Jordan, who won a throwback MMD draft match with 27 seconds left on his clock while at negative six life and no cards left in his deck. Thanks, Platinum Angel. The original, you got removal or no card? Yeah. Platinum Angel got me in in some of the random various cubes that have come up on Arena. You know what got me? The stupid Platinum Angel Light, the the magical Kirin thing from Neon Dynasty. That was like the card that killed me every time my opponent had it. Oh, I remember watching that one where all of your answers just kept getting milled. Yeah, milled or they were like one was like the last card in my deck and it didn't matter by that point. It was just like a million things went wrong. Oh, I hate that effect. It's like worse than hexproof to me Mm -hmm. so that brings us to chris's bad beat in my head i got oh i want to play really high quality best of three limited magic let me go to mtgo to check out that scene because i was just queuing into like 50 card opponents in uh, arena one too many times and i figured you know let's go check out mtgo so i think i want to preface this with don't believe the lies all the boomers are pushing you that mtgo has better players because I definitely ran into some questionable plays during my little toe dipping in MTGO. But my bad beat is basically losing to a player that made multiple like small mistakes throughout the game that were just like throwing away value. And I still lost. For example, they were playing Mardu deck. And of course, they were just like hitting all of their colors on curve every time. But they had a Steel Crusher out that you could sack to kill artifacts. And I had some meaningful artifacts on a battlefield. I was doing like wall stuff or something. And I had the tap wall and they just like failed to realize I could sack their ape to kill my tap wall. And then instead of looting with their goblin picker when they had like eight or nine lands out, they kept on just playing out their lands. And then when I played my Banala Sleeper and kicked it, they just like sacked objectively the wrong thing. I don't remember the board at the time, but it was just <laughs> it's like your most important creature. Why would you sack it to the sleeper? It was like their one flyer or something in like a board stall. And then it was just like things like that just kept on happening. And I still ended up losing just because I kept on like flooding or I had a mole. So it was just a very frustrating match. Not one big thing, but many small things just kind of put me on tilt. But it did give me confidence to like shut down the people that are like, oh, MTGO has the best players. All the real players are on MTGO. I don't think so. I call bull poop on that. 
Thanks for censoring yourself there, Chris. My deep lexicon of really lets me find the best vocabulary words for my anger. You big stupid duty head. <laughs> Basically. Come check out our totally free Discord where you can get deck decks, pick advice, check out trophy decks, discuss limited, or just chill. You can find the Draft Lab on Twitch at J2SJosh, Floridamun, Icky, Equal TV, to Jordan and DeFore. Don't forget to check out MTGAZone.com for awesome strategy articles by the Draft Lab. You can also check out the MTGA Zone YouTube channel, which just put up a new video featuring the entire Draft Lab. Well, that's 60 episodes in, and this time I really think it will be different when Chris says his gator problems are in the past.